Welcome to another episode of WDMA Open and Close. I'm Eric DeVos with the Window and Door Manufacturers Association. Coming up on the podcast, WDMA's Jeff Finks will have a conversation with Dr. Robert Tennant from the National Renewable Energy Labs, or NREL. Dr. Tennant was a speaker at the recent WDMA Technical and Manufacturing Conference. He talks with Jeff about NREL's mission and highlights some of the research and development projects currently underway related to dynamic, photovoltaic, and insulating glass technologies. A little later, WDMA CEO Mike O'Brien and Director of Government Affairs Kevin McKenney will have a discussion about what to expect in Washington this coming fall. As a reminder, you can subscribe to WDMA Open and Close through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also listen to us online through the WDMA website at wdma.com forward slash WDMA open and closed. Today's guest is Robert Tennant, Senior Scientist in the Materials Science Center at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado, also known as NREL. Uh, he has overseen the NREL Fenestration Research Program since 2012. In the fenestration area, Dr. Tennant has led research and development efforts in dynamic, photovoltaic, and highly insulating technologies. Dr. Tennant and his teams have uh, repeatedly been recognized for excellence in early-stage technology development, as well as technology transfer into the public sector. Dr. Tennant also advises multiple early-stage companies in the development of next-generation fenestration technologies. So, uh, welcome, Robert, and thank you for joining us today on this session of Open and Close. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Hey, great. So um, first, for those listeners who may not be familiar with the National Renewable Energy Labs or NREL, can you tell us a little bit about NREL and the type of projects that you work on related to the fenestration industry? Absolutely. So, so NREL in general, um, for those that may not be familiar, we, we are part of the National Laboratory uh, System. We are a Department of Energy um, laboratory. Uh, we're located in Golden, Colorado. Um, as the name somewhat describes, we are focused uh, exclusively on energy efficiency and renewable energy. Uh, we work for that particular branch of the Department of Energy uh, as well. In the window space, uh, particularly, we, we do um, a lot of work uh, in early stage technology, really evaluation, development, and demonstration. Um, and that includes work all the way from building energy modeling and economic modeling of new concepts to see whether or not we think there's actually value there, um, all the way up into materials uh, development, uh, design, implementation, into prototype devices. Uh, we can take prototype devices, test them for example durability um, over time, and then we, we also do assist a lot of groups in field installation. So we, we really run all the way across from, hey, I've got this goofy idea, all the way to I'm ready to install and need to verify there's actually value here. So great. Uh, thank you, Robert, for that. So can you tell us a little bit about how that process works? Say, for instance, if I'm a manufacturer and I have a technology that I think is meaningful, but uh, needs further development, and I need some assistance uh, with that. Can I approach NREL uh, with my idea? 
Absolutely. Um, and, and we do those kinds of projects constantly. Um, we do work with some larger manufacturers, uh, but a, a heavy volume of our work is with relatively early stage companies, um, startups in particular. Uh, we've had a partnership going for a number of years now with the Wells Fargo Foundation um, sponsoring a technology incubator here. And so many of our projects come in through that particular avenue. And it's actually proven to be a tremendous uh, growth uh, engine, I would argue, for what we've been able to do in this space. But yeah, so people will come to us. I mean, often they may have some kind of a very specific request. Uh, if it's a, a larger manufacturer or something like that, usually the request that comes in is pretty specific because they're fairly far down the road. Um, with some of the early stage startups, we're we're often dealing with with scientists who understand a bit about the physics of what they're dealing with, but don't really have complete transparency into what it's going to take to carry that thing into the market. And so we we try to help um, again through the Wells Fargo Group and, and others as well uh, to take those people, educate them a bit about what that's going to take, uh, and then you know the whole slew of of capabilities that I mentioned earlier for for the really early stage people. We, we usually do focus on the economic analysis and building energy modeling uh, because that's a relatively quick way to try and prove out a value proposition. Um, but you know, we, we often pair with that the material science and prototyping work because you know, a model and an economic model only carries so much value until somebody can actually put their hands on something that's doing what you're trying to, to sell. Um, it doesn't really become entirely real. And so that's usually the way we'll, we'll integrate in with a lot of the very early stage technologies that we work with. Um, later stage companies, as I said, they will, will often come in with something where, you know what, I've got this product, this product concept, and we've got this one gap here, and we need this new material to try to address this problem. Or, and I think I mentioned this briefly earlier, a significant part of our program, really the historically longest, uh, has been focused on evaluating durability of emerging fenestration technologies. And I think we're all well aware of um, the degree of risk for people adopting a new technology, in particular in fenestration uh, in that space. And so that's also something that's proved to be a, a substantial hurdle, even for later stage development companies, before they get real credibility uh, elsewhere in the market um, that enables them to to either develop the partnerships they need to get something out there or for that matter develop just the investment uh, that they need to try to move something forward so either we, we engage people as I said across that entire spectrum it just depends very much on on where they are in their development and what their needs are very well durability in particular uh, obviously is, is one that um, manufacturers obviously need to have a lot of confidence in. So that's uh, uh, good to know that there is a resource out there uh, that will help um, not only just develop technologies, um, but particularly in particular focus on um, things such as durability, again, because that's uh, extremely, extremely important. One thing I would like to call out about that point in particular, the, the durability program here is, is really in the middle of a pretty dramatic change. Um, and so we, we did the standard that's out there for assessing durability of electrochromic dynamic windows um, that has morphed into some other uh, thermochromic window technologies and the like. Um, but we, we are expanding into a few different areas, but it's also where we're really hoping to engage much more of the industry 
for a lot more of a back and forth as to what what is needed there. And so that that's a place where we've been engaged with a lot of very large companies over the last year, but certainly are looking to hear and learn more uh, from others who are interested. So I, anybody that, that would like to talk about that, I would absolutely encourage them to reach out. It's great to hear. Uh, so keeping in that vein, you gave a presentation at our recent technical and manufacturing conference in June highlighting recent fenestration research and development, and you noted uh, that you see industry beginning to embrace photovoltaic and dynamic glazing in ways that are shaping the future of residential glazing. Uh, how quickly do you see these technologies becoming more mainstream and being used in residential construction? So um, the jump to residential, I think, is, is going to be an interesting one. Um, the, the, of the two technologies you mentioned, by far the one that, that's furthest down the road is is just the dynamic glazing, uh, that really specifically being you know materials, the change tint and the like. There's certainly several variants of that that are coming through the pipeline right now, um, but those have already got very sizable installations. Um, that are out there right now. I, I know that uh, a company named View uh, out in the Bay Area, they're manufacturing in North Mississippi, but they, um, they've got an installation, I believe, going into the Dallas airport right now um, that has made a, a good bit of news uh, as well. So, so that, that space appears to be gaining traction, and there's others that are getting that as well. I don't want to call out just one specific company in that because there's several others. We, we've done work with View. We've done work with Sage Electrochromics and, and Canestral Technologies as well, um, who are the ones that I think are probably the furthest along in that area um, and going to be the most exciting to watch for a bit. Um, how those groups move towards residential, I think, is going to be interesting. I mean, they, they appear to be pretty heavily focused on commercial uh, for where things are right now. There might be a little bit more um, interest from some of the folks working on what we call a thermochromic technology. So the electrochromic changes its properties based on applying an electrical voltage. So you do have to power the window, which is, has created some fun discussions um, with, with contractors and the like from the stories that I've gotten. In the thermochromic space, you don't have to do that. It, it's it's a, a set material that switches its properties based on a certain temperature. Um, and so those technologies, I think, may be a little bit easier to integrate, and they may be looking a little more closely at residential. So that's one I, I'm interested. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the move to residential, but I'm, I'm curious to see how they try to make that jump. So, yes, that will be very interesting. Uh, I believe that as these technologies continue to evolve, uh, that will give us greater insights in how best to incorporate it into resident construction. We uh, talked about... Um, photo, or you just talked about photovoltaic and dynamic glazing technologies. What about vacuum glazing? Uh, greater attention is being given to that, um, and there is great hope for it, but um, there are still some concerns about um, the technology and evolving it to the, to the point where, number one, we can have confidence in it from a durability standpoint, uh, but also making it a, a, a practical Fenestration uh, uh, product, uh, in particular for residential construction, is Inrel doing much with uh, vacuum insulated glazing? So that that is when I mentioned earlier um, the bit about the durability program changing. That's part of where that's going. Um, and you're right, vacuum insulated glass at the moment is an extremely exciting place to be. Um, yeah, we've had products out there for a long time. NSG Pilkington has had their spatial product, I believe, on the market for about 20 years at this point. Uh, but we are starting to see 
other products begin to emerge, ones that we have heard for years and years were coming, are, are starting to, to pop up. So Guardian Industries, uh, as an example, has made some very recent announcements. Uh, there are several other companies that are evaluating technologies from, from other suppliers. Uh, and there's actually a decent bit of action in the startup community there as well. Um, we've got two that we've done some work with here, one named V-Glass Technologies and another one named Astrovac uh, Glass, uh, both of which focus on doing a flexible edge seal material in the VIG, which we believe will will give better durability over at least some of the earlier technologies. But that gets also back into the question that you hit there earlier and where I think there's still substantial concern here. Um, if vacuum insulated glass fails, it fails big. And so that, I think, is where people have got some concern. And there is a lot of work going on right now, and there's a lot, a lot of work, a tremendous has been done um, in trying to understand durability of vacuum insulating glass. So the University of Sydney in particular has done quite a bit, and we are starting a partnership with them right now. Um, there is a standard that's emerging out of ISO uh, that we're actually working with Sydney to help support um, at the moment as well. And so we do anticipate doing a good bit more work on failure analysis of vacuum insulated glass uh, over the next couple of years as we start to see these products move closer to the market. It's the same thing we talked about before. I mean, any data that we can generate that's coming from, you know, the independent third party carries value for being able to try and move those products into the market. Um, I mean, the people that are developing them right now have already done some very intensive work uh, in that particular space. And I do want to be clear about that. But but our role is to to act as that sort of third party that can help uh, provide some verification, or at least that's the role that, that has been expressed to us by the, the people that we've been talking to in this area. Well, uh, that's uh, that's great to hear because, again, uh, that is a technology that has a lot of promise and one that, that we hope uh, we can bring mainstream, especially, again, with respect to residential construction. Absolutely. So one final question for you. Um, we, you know, we talked about the photovoltaic and dynamic glazing and the vacuum insulated glazing technologies. Uh, are there other trends that you see that will be a driving force for the window door and skylight industry in the near and or long-term future? So I think, um, I mean, the, there's a push for improved thermal performance. I, I think that's that's certainly there. But, but the other one that I think has got people maybe um, the most excited, and it gets back into some of the photovoltaic and dynamic approaches, is, is adding different types of functionality to the glass. Uh, can you can you incorporate the PV? Can you incorporate the dynamic aspects? Can you make it into some kind of a display even is something that I have, have seen out there for a while now. So I think uh, it'll be a combination. You know, I mean, uh, the from the Department of Energy uh, plan, which is what we work off of, the the real holy grail is to have a super insulating window that also contains the dynamic control of solar heat gain. So there are some very interesting things starting to go on where those some of the technologies we talked about are actually merging. Uh, I, I do know some people that are doing some work in integrating uh, some of the new VIG products with a dynamic um, aspect as well. And so I think the merging of those two uh, is is going to provide something that's going to be extremely interesting. Uh, the PV space, obviously, is, is yet another degree of functionality in there. I mean, the the thought is that that may, may provide more flexible integration strategies for solar and, and commercial construction, really, in particular. Um, 
is is where that one is looking as well. But yeah, I, I think to me the the trend that I, I hear the most chatter about is more functionality in the glass unit is where where we're seeing. But then that's also the people that we generally work with as well. There could be other perspectives out there. <clears throat> Well, it's uh, great to know, and I know industry appreciates the role that NREL plays in uh, bringing those technologies uh, to the market. So thank you very much, Robert. We appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and telling our listeners about NREL and some of the research and development that is currently underway there, in particular with respect to fenestration. Yeah, uh, no problem, Jeff. I enjoyed it. This was fun. The place to be every fall is the WDMA Executive Management Conference. It's the only industry conference where senior management teams from the window, door, and skylight industry's leading companies gather to understand and address the challenges facing the industry. Taking place this year on September 25th to 26th in Cambridge, Massachusetts, this conference comes just in time for 2020 strategic planning and offers topics and trends which will shape the industry over the coming year and is the only industry event to feature a CEO roundtable. For more program and registration information, visit WGMA.com. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Mike O'Brien with WDMA, along with Kevin McKenney, our Director of Government Affairs. And we're going to get into a little bit about what what's gonna happen in Congress and in Washington this fall and a little bit about what's going on in the states. I know it's an interesting time to be in DC and I know there's been a lot of information in the news about a variety of different topics, some of which are of big importance to the window door and skylight industry. So Kevin, welcome back. Thank you, great to be here. So let's talk about tariffs. That seems to be on top of mind for a lot of folks uh, in the industry right now. The uh, steel and aluminum tariffs were rescinded for Canada and Mexico, but they're still going on a lot with China. So can you give us an update about what's going on? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Yes, the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, were recently rescinded for Canada and Mexico. This was in an effort to... um, try to get some uh, momentum going on approval of the USMCA agreement. That's the agreement that's meant to uh, replace NAFTA. But there is still a lot going on with China, in particular, the administration's efforts to uh, really place a tariff on a wide range of Chinese products. WDMA, over the course of the activity with the the, uh, Chinese tariffs have been weighing in where appropriate and really trying to make sure that the window door and skylight industry uh, isn't adversely affected by these tariffs. Uh, Just to recap quickly, WDMA was successful when the first list of Chinese products were released. Uh, We were successful in getting several products exempted from that tariff. So that uh, that was a good thing. With the third list that was released of Chinese products, there were several products there that affected the industry. Uh, We weighed in with the United States Trade Representative trying to get those products removed from the list, uh, but they were particularly scarce in granting uh, exclusions for list three. However, recently, the United States Trade Representative has opened the exclusion request process for list three, uh, and so they're considering on a case-by-case basis removing certain 
products, but really very in a very tailored way. This would only apply to particular companies and particular uh, uses. And so currently they have a docket open where they are uh, soliciting uh, exclusion requests. The deadline for submission of those exclusion requests is September 30th. And WDMA is going to be resubmitting all of the products that we had originally requested when List 3 came out and is currently working with a few WDMA member companies who are interested in just providing some guidance. Uh, and so I encourage you, if you'd like to uh, go that route, I'd be happy to provide input to WDMA members and kind of help them through the process if they'd like to file their own, uh, their own requests. So that's the current status with list three. There is um, a proposal for a fourth list of Chinese products that would be subject to a 25% tariff. Uh, President Trump originally suspended uh, the proposed uh, list four tariffs, that 25% level uh, in June. Uh, but later on, he has uh, announced that those tariffs would go back into effect on September 1st. So then we, we got another delay uh, until September 15th. So, we have kind of a lot of moving pieces as the, the tariff issue continues. We have a lot of delays and then going back and uh, imposing them. Currently right now, we're, we're, we're not super focused on list four. We're really focusing on list three and making sure that we protect the industry. Uh, because there's a lot more wood related products and other component products that are used in the industry versus what's proposed for list four. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's right. A lot of the stuff on list four is things like holiday gifts. It's like some things like that. But list three is really where uh, there's a great impact on the residential commercial construction industry, the window door skylight industry and others. So those are a lot of the things that are on that list, including wood products, component parts used in manufacturing, things like that. So what's your assessment about the administration's appetite for granting exclusions. You know, we, we got some on list one. Um, it, it doesn't seem that, that there's been a lot of exclusions being granted. Or, or do you know what criteria are they using for granting exclusions? Let's, let's put it that way. Right. Yeah, they, they're being very scarce with granting exclusion requests. They are doing some. They, some companies have received exclusions from the tariffs. The criteria that they're using is you have to be making the case that the products that are being imported from China uh, by American companies, uh, they would have to make the case that th these products would not be available anywhere else in the United States. And so there is a an immediate need to import them from another country. And in addition, they'd have to be, they have to make the case that these products from China are not available in any other products or, or excuse me, any other countries. And so, for example, if a company said, well, we don't have this product readily available in the United States, it's crucial to our manufacturing process, but they could get it from Mexico or um, any other, another Asian country, perhaps like South Korea, the administration would say, well, you can get it from these other countries. So they're being very limited in the products that they are uh, considering for exclusions. Um, but there's always the possibility that things could soften a little bit with increased relations with China. I mean, right now it's been a bit rocky, but there is always the possibility that they could find some kind of deal and um, that the, the tariffs would kind of be rolled back. So I think a lot of people are just waiting to figure out and see how a lot of the upcoming talks are going to go between the U.S. and China. But as of right now, they remain pretty adamant about the implementation of, uh, of those tariffs. 
Well, with China devaluing its currency, I believe with the motivation to lessen the impact of the tariffs, um, that's taking a little bit of pressure price-wise off some of these products, but it's obviously not the preferred way to go in terms of trade negotiations. Yeah, one thing that the currency part is, is interesting, and I think it illustrates what China is considering with this whole thing. I mean, they're looking at this, of course, unfavorably uh, for for their industries and the, who are being subject to the tariff. And they're looking at it like, well, we can take some temporary measures that are going to alleviate some of the effects that we're experiencing from these American tariffs. But in addition, uh, the president isn't going to be in office forever. So it's sort of playing a waiting game. And I think China is looking at it like we're going to continue to talk with him, but we're just going to take some efforts that are going to or take some steps that are going to mitigate the effects of these tariffs and then just wait them out. So um, they're going to be meeting again, uh, let's see, next month uh, in D.C. The Chinese officials are going to be here visiting, talking about trade issues. And so we'll, we'll see what comes of that. So far, those discussions haven't been very fruitful, but anything can happen. And so we'll be looking next month to that visit. Well, I think with the increase in recession talk possibly on the horizon. I think that's putting additional pressure to get some sort of resolution to this at, before we get into the, the heat of the, the 2020 election next year too. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that could be the variable that changes the direction of the administration. If um, there were increased worries about a recession or some kind of impactful economic downturn, I think you could see the administration rethink its strategy on tariffs. You know, so up until now, the, the strategy has been pretty aggressive and they sort of are aware that there are some negative effects from the tariffs, um, but they're willing to, to kind of stomach those. But I think if there were uh, signs that a, a recession is coming or at least just some negative economic indicators that could change their their strategy a bit. So that would probably be the variable that that could change things. But otherwise, this is a big campaign promise of his. And so I think that he's looking at it that way. And so uh, otherwise, I think he'll just keep it up for the time being. So let's talk a little bit about Congress and, and how little they actually are doing. So update us on energy legislation that WDMA supports. Yes, well, we've uh, been successful in getting a reintroduction of some energy code language that we are uh, that we've been trying to get included in some energy legislation over the past few years. Uh, we made this a hill issue during our recent uh, legislative conference here in D.C. earlier this year, and this is uh, essentially a piece of legislation that would uh, set some requirements for the Department of Energy and the way that they are participating in the energy co-development process. In the past, we referred to this as Blackburn Schrader, uh, as it was championed primarily by then-Congresswoman uh, Marsha Blackburn, who's now a senator. That effort has been picked up in the House by Congressman Kurt Schrader, a Democrat from Oregon. Uh, he has recently introduced that bill. It's H.R. 3586. And uh, it's co-sponsored currently by one Republican, that's Bill Flores from uh, the state of Texas. Uh, so we're, we're very happy that that was reintroduced in the House. And we are currently working with Senator Blackburn on introducing a standalone Senate bill. Uh, it would be identical to the House bill. So we're trying to get that introduced in both chambers. Similar um, and related to energy policy. Well, before you go move on, though, 
we'd like people to contact their senators and congressmen about sponsoring, co-sponsoring the legislation, which they can do through the WDMA website. You want to yes. let people know? Yes, you can do that right through the WDMA website. We have uh, a grassroots action center that makes it very easy to contact your members of Congress on this issue. You can just go to the WDMA website and uh, you'll see this under the advocacy tab on the menu bar. Uh, this is a great way to weigh in with your elected officials. It takes about 25 seconds to complete this. We have a pre-populated form letter that expresses support for this legislation. Uh, so I definitely encourage members to to get on that and contact their member of Congress. It takes 25 seconds to do. It's a few clicks, uh, and it's a great way to make your voice heard and weigh in with uh, with your elected officials. Sure. Yes. This is just a uh, kind of providing additional context of this legislation and how it factors into policy to policy. Um, uh, broader policy. So in the past, uh, energy policy or energy legislation has been supported by Senator Rob Portman and Senator Janine Shaheen on the Democratic side. This is a large comprehensive energy bill that they've been trying to get passed for a number of years and so far have been unsuccessful. One of the things that's a provision of that bill is energy code legislation or an energy code section. And WDMA would like to see the energy code section contained in Senator Portman's bill replaced with the legislation that's now supported by Congressman Schrader in the House. And so while we're supporting the standalone bill uh, of this legislation, Congressman Schrader's bill, what we are hoping to do is to use uh, the Portman bill as a vehicle to pass uh, this energy code legislation that WDMA is supportive of. Senator Portman's staff is a little bit hesitant about that, so we're continuing to talk with them and work with them, and this is why it's important to weigh in with your elected officials. If we can boost the number of co-sponsors on the Schrader bill and uh, at the same time the Senate bill when it gets introduced, that will put additional pressure on the, the higher-ups and powers that be who would be moving this energy legislation to include the WDMA-backed language. And so uh, all the more reason to take action on that, try to increase the number of co-sponsors. And um, anything can happen this year is possible that they could pass energy legislation this year. It's There's probably a few other things they want to focus on, but um, it's certainly something that we're continuing to to advocate for, uh, especially after the work uh, our members did, the great work our members did uh, during our legislative conference in April. So what are the other big issues you see Congress potentially tackling this fall? And I always underscore potentially. Yes, potentially is definitely the key word. So one of the things I wanted to mention was uh, the tax extenders legislation that is currently pending before uh, Congress. There is both a House and Senate bill uh, to extend uh, several expiring tax provisions. So this wouldn't be like a tax cut bill that was passed a few years ago by the Republicans. This would be a bill that calls out very specific tax provisions, tax credits, and deductions that are expired or are going to expire, and it would uh, just simply extend those uh, those tax provisions. A couple examples are the 25C provision. Uh, this is the provision for um, energy-efficient windows and doors. Uh, 45L, uh, that's the uh, credit for contractors for uh, energy-efficient new homes. Uh, 179D is in there as well. That's the credit for uh, building owners for installing energy efficient systems um, and so in, in buildings. 
So there are several provisions uh, in the tax extenders bills, both of them, uh, that WDMA takes interest in for sure. So that's something that we're following. I think there's a good chance that they would pass tax extenders legislation. There's interest on both sides of the aisle uh, to pass that. They're getting, they're, they're definitely getting input from uh, a lot of different business groups, but also consumers uh, to pass these and allow these deductions to continue. But they're still at the lower levels of, of previous yes. tax credit. So it, they're, they're fairly minimal, $200 for windows and $500 for entry doors. That's right. Yeah. The, a lot of these levels in particular, so that's an example of 25C, which really came about during the recession. Um, those levels haven't changed. Uh, they've been extending a lot of these provisions over the years, you know, giving it a two-year extension, things like that. And but they haven't addressed the levels, and so there there has been discussion about addressing those levels and increasing them to consider just a lot of changing factors that seeming you know a lot of people think it would make sense to increase those levels. I know that there are some in Congress who are in favor of that, some are not. So I think it's probably more uh, unlikely that they will. Um, it's, it's unlikely that he'll change the levels at this point. I think that it's more likely that they'll just retroactively extend these credits like 25C. And so, but I think that, um, you know, the Senate Finance Committee is definitely taking a lot of action on this. That's Chairman uh, Grassley from Iowa. He's established these task forces that are uh, really looking at all of these different issue areas and the need to pass tax extenders. So he's he's very adamant about passing that uh, chairman Neal on the democratic side in the house is the chairman of the ways and means committee who has jurisdiction over this. Uh, he signaled that he's uh, interested in doing this. He's not as adamant as Senator Grassley, but I think the fact that both chairmen of the tax writing committees in Congress are, are supportive of this is a good sign that they may uh, do something on this in the fall. Any other big issues you're expecting? Well, there's always the, um, the appropriations process. Um, they, they have to pass 12 um, appropriations bills or a package of those all together by September 30th to avoid another government shutdown. Um, they recently passed uh, via a budget agreement, the top line spending levels. Uh, so all they have to really do now at this point is allocate money. It'll, it'll be Interesting to see if they can find agreement on that. They, they visit this issue pretty much every year where they're trying to avoid a government shutdown and just pass appropriations bills. So we'll see about that. But one other one I wanted to mention as well is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, this is something that we, we've talked about before where Congress needs to uh, pass this bill in, or pass this agreement in both chambers for it to take effect. Uh, we reported that President Trump last year signed that with the, the uh, Canadian and Mexican governments. So can, uh, Congress needs to take this up and pass it for it to go into effect. Um, the Democrats are a little bit apprehensive about it. They're, they'd like to see some changes to the current version of the agreement, which does look a lot like the previous version of NAFTA. A lot of it is very similar. Um, but I think that as uh, advocacy continues to put pressure on uh, on Congress to pass this and and even President Trump as well. Uh, I think there's a good chance that it will pass. Um, and so that's something to look for uh, in the fall as well. We're part of uh, the USMCA coalition, which is made up of several industry groups here in town that are advocating pretty strongly for uh, passing this agreement. We think it would be very good for the industry. Uh, so we're going to continue advocating for that and working with a lot of the other associations like the National Association of Manufacturers, US Chamber of Commerce, uh, to see that uh, agreement go into effect. So shifting to the states a little bit, 
we have a situation I know going on in Washington state with the regulation of hydrofluorocarbons that potentially may have an impact on us. So you want to just give a brief overview of what that is and where it stands? Sure. Well, the state of Washington uh, this year considered a piece of legislation and passed it uh, that would uh, phase out the use of hydrofluorocarbons, um, which of course are um, considered to be damaging to the environment. Uh, this is in the wake of a uh, previously finalized EPA rule. Uh, it's the EPA SNAP rule, which would nationally phased out hydrofluorocarbons, but that EPA rule was struck down by a federal court. And so what's been happening is that several states have been considering taking their own action on the phase out of hydrofluorocarbons, California being the first one who passed uh, their own phase out uh, several years ago, and then Washington state has followed suit uh, this year. The reason that WDMA is, in, is interested in this issue is that uh, in many cases, uh, HFCs and their substitutes are used in uh, foam blowing agents um, for, uh, for metal doors when they're manufacturing uh, metal doors. And so we are interested in, uh, in, in this issue for that reason. In particular, in Washington state that caught our attention um, was one of the provisions that requires uh, reporting and labeling uh, by product manufacturers to the state of Washington. Uh, so it's essentially saying if you use a, a particular substitute that's on a restricted list, um, the Washington State Department of Ecology wants manufacturers uh, to report to them what the substitutes they're using, whether, uh, of course, whether they're using an approved substitute in that case. And then there's the possibility that they would impose a labeling requirement on products uh, next year. So there's a lot of ambiguity that is still out there regarding this legislation. Uh, the way it's written is that they decided to give a lot of the authority over the rulemaking process to the Department of Ecology. So there's a lot that has to be considered by that department and then implemented via the rulemaking process. Um, the good thing about that is um, WDMA has been very engaged with the Department of Ecology staff uh, out in Washington State. We've had several email discussions, phone call discussions with them, asking them particular clarifying questions about this issue. Uh, they've been very forthcoming with information and are interested in working with us. And so we feel very confident that um, the HFC issue is going to be something that, you know, um, WDMA is a big player in and that the Department of Ecology is going to consider our industry when um, promulgating these rulemakings, particularly on the labeling provision. and um, Which we are exempted from in California. That's right. So, yeah, you know, our goal is to, since we're now stuck with this state-by-state -state approach, is to try and get some consistency uh, in this approach in the state so that manufacturers don't have to deal with a variety of different requirements from different states. So the labeling requirement, I think, is the area that's causing the most angst. That's right, yes. And I think that that, that is the biggest issue is the fact that there could be a patchwork of regulations scattered throughout the states that cause, um, you know, some problems for manufacturers trying to comply with all different state regulations. And so we're, we're very aware of that and trying to make sure that we're, we're on top of that. And one of the things we are doing as well is uh, we've recently spoken with um, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana and Senator Tom Carper uh, from Delaware who are uh, federal senators who are considering uh, some legislation that would allow for the, uh, the EPA to re-promulgate their SNAP rule and do so with a, with a 
deliberate congressional mandate via legislation. This could be something that, depending on how it's written, of course, this could be something that provides that uh, consistency across the board nationally for hydrofluorocarbons and um, making sure that there's no just patchwork of, of state regulations. And so we've had some initial conversations with them. There's no draft or legislation as of yet, but it's something that they're considering doing um, coming up. And so we're going to be continuing to engage with their office and make sure that we're you know, educating them about our industry and, and advocating on behalf of, of our members to prevent that kind of patchwork of regulations around the states. Well, that wraps up our fall preview uh, of Washington. Thanks so much, Kevin, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And that does it for another episode of WDMA Open and Close. If you are listening to us through your favorite podcast platform, do us a favor and don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks for listening and goodbye until the next episode of WDMA Open and Close.